This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. When you talk to cricketers, you talk to men that have made their name on the green stuff, in the centre of the activity, where all our eyes are focused. When you speak to Henry Alonga, you do that. You also speak to somebody that sacrificed their cricket career. Somebody who, when they were standing up for something, they stood up to something that actually could have a serious effect on their life. Something that saw Henry have to leave Zimbabwe for fear of death threats and repercussions. So speaking to Henry Alonga is more than speaking to just a cricketer. It's speaking to, along with Andy Flower, somebody who took their principles, wore them in a black armband, and has lived with the repercussions ever since. He's also a rather good singer. Before I get into the chat with Henry, here's a little snippet of his appearance on The Voice Australia, which when I first saw it on Twitter, made me go, flipping heck, this fella can sing. This is why. Cricket Badger Fact File, Henry Olonga. The first black cricketer and youngest ever player to represent Zimbabwe at international level. As a fast bowler he played 30 test matches and 51 day internationals. Best bowling in tests, 5 for 70. Best bowling in one day internationals, 6 for 19. Forever linked with Andy Flower for their death of democracy black armband protest during the 2003 World Cup. Now singing for his supper, he was recently on The Voice Australia. Henry, let's have a badger chat. Henry, I'll, I'll start with The Voice. You were on The Voice Australia, and I knew that you'd done a few gigs around England a few years ago where you spoke a little bit about your career, and then you sang a bit at the end. I saw a, on Twitter, I think it was, a video of you on, on The Voice Australia. I was blown away a little bit. Your voice was spectacular. Well, that's very kind of you, mate. Uh, yeah, England England um, is a while back now. We, we've been in Australia for about four years now. And, uh, you know, there are many reasons why we came here, but mainly in part uh, to do with the fact that we've got two girls who were school-going age, and we wanted them to come and, you know, spend some time with their grandparents, etc., and also kind of enjoy the more outdoors nature of Australia. So that's what brought us here. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, living in England and working there. And But it was very, it was very, um, it was very much a niche. I was working in, in the field of speaking mainly at schools, uh, the odd university, churches, and then in, indeed, what do you call it, end of season dinners, uh, uh, mainly to do with cricket. But once in a while, there was rugby or something like that. Uh, I think I started that in 2006. So I arrived in England after the Black Armour protest, etc., starting a new life, and I was with the Lashings World Eleven for a number of years, nine in total, in fact. Um, but then during the off-season, I needed to do something else with myself. Season was probably about three or four months, and so decided to uh, yeah, pursue the public speaking. And then, of course, uh, my story is rather drab and boring. 
if I must be honest. You know, there's political intrigue in there. There's You can sprinkle in a few, you know, interesting things like death threats, etc. Pretty mediocre career as well. So I had to spice things up, and so I started singing. And singing, of course, is something I did at school, uh, and it was almost a career at one point. Uh, if, if I hadn't gone into test cricket, it's possible that I might have gone into music, uh, stage, acting, etc. Mainly musicals. That, that was my great love at school. And so, ultimately, I was invited onto the show. I wasn't looking for it. I'd sung in a concert here in Adelaide with the police band, the Adelaide uh, South Australian police band. Somehow it, it got online. So, ultimately, they got in touch with me and asked me if I wanted to come on the show. And I initially hesitant. Then I thought to myself, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And then, of course, um, I, I also had to consider the fact I'm not getting any younger. Um, I was 42 when they asked me. So, you know, you do the maths and you think, well, if I say no and they never ask me again, well, it's not going to happen. But if, if I say no and then I think I'm ready at the age of 45, 46, maybe maybe the ship sailed by then. So, you know, I thought to myself, well, it's probably not a bad time to dip my toes into that world. And so I did. For, for somebody living in England, I, I didn't follow the series very closely. How, how far did you get? How did you do? Um, I got through to the battles, which is when you sing against someone. So to sing off. Yeah. So I did the first one, which is the blind audition where you try and turn a chair. Um, I was lucky I, got, I turned three chairs. And I eventually went with Kelly Rowland, the American singer from Destiny's Child. Yeah. I then got through a very shaky knockout round. Uh, that put me through to the battles. And that's when I got sent home. So in the battles, because I sing very differently to most people uh, who were in my group, and, and, and we also had a rapper, I actually decided to put us together and do a mashup of a song sung by Adele and also by Eminem. So the song Lose Yourself, yeah. along with um, Adele's Skyfall. So um, I think it's still on YouTube, so people can watch it. Um, I've seen that. It was really good. Yeah, so obviously it's very subjective judgment um, on the part of the coach, but coach went for for the other guys she went for denzel so i went home and what has it led to well a few more gigs here and there i guess you know which is what you kind of hope to achieve when you go on a show like that you're not going to turn into the next sort of great thing in in music you just it's an open door i'm getting a few more inquiries and, and hopefully the the trajectory is upwards and, and i'll keep getting more gigs and if i keep delivering and making people think that i'm worth booking then i get more booking so uh, and ultimately this is kind of like my job now so still still public speaking um and still singing but I, I i'd much rather sing a lot more than i than i speak because you know ultimately my story has been flogged to death i've, I've told that story since 2003 really and you know, not, not a lot has changed apart from the fact that Mugabe's dead now. You know, there's, there's almost there's there's only so many times you can tell the same thing, and and so music's more intriguing to me. Yeah, so a lot of corporate work. That's kind of where my bread and butter is at the moment. One of the greatest opportunities I've, that's come out of the voice is I'm going to be singing with the with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra in November. Oh, wow. So that's really fun. And in addition, the South Australian Police Band again and the Army Band. So. Yeah, I've got bands coming out my ears now, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, but that's really nice. It's really nice to be out there as a singer, being taken a little more seriously than I, I was before. So uh, it's it's all just you know, I'm, I'm not here to try and prove that I'm a great singer or anything because I'm not. But uh, you know, but I, I I think there's a space for has been cricketers who are trying to eke out a new way of earning a living, you know. So so I'm I'm enjoying it at the moment, and who knows what next year or the year after holds. But for now, I'm just. I'm happy to to be singing live and no no record label deal or anything like that but that's fine you know I'm I'm actually quite happy to be an an indie artist and just you know enjoying the artistry of making music the craft if you will one last question on the voice before we do move on to cricket I imagine walking onto that stage when the chairs are all turned away from you you know you can sing you've sung before and people have said that you you're good but there must be part of you thinking please somebody turn around you must have been quite relieved to see three turn around no, absolutely. But Kelly Rowland only turned right at the last minute, you know. So the thing about it is you, you, there's a number of factors that go into a performance. One, you're trying to connect with the audience. Two, you're trying to remember your, your lyrics and your delivery. You know, you want to you wanna make it meaningful. You, you, anyone can stand up and sing a song, but you want to make it connect and you want to. So there are all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of things you've rehearsed and cues and all sorts of things that need to go into the performance that you need to remember. And, and so you're thinking about that. And then you also trying to see if it, you know if, if a chair's turned and thankfully i turned a chair early on kind of caught it out the corner of my eye and then got another one but then you still got to sing you know you still got to finish off <laughs> so it was good when delta goodrum turned first she's quite a 
a big um, Australian artist, and then of course Boy George, and then Kelly right at the end. But but yes, you only need one, by the way. You know, you only need one person to turn. So ultimately, it was very flattering to get three. And the irony is, the one person I would have chosen as my coach is the one person who didn't turn. <laughs> so that was um, Guy Sebastian. So there's a bit of a story, of course, because I don't know if this is on YouTube, but my wife walked down the aisle to one of his songs ah, when, okay. he was, when he was uh, Australian Idol. So there's a bit of history there. But anyways, uh, that's just a little factoid. You say that everybody can stand up and sing. I promise you, Henry, that you wouldn't want to sing my episode of The Voice because you would not have that same comment after that. Um, let's go back to your cricket career and let's take you right back to when you were a child and you first picked up a bat, you first bowled a ball. How did you get into cricket? Was it always going to be cricket? Was there ever anything else that was going to take you away from cricket? Uh, yeah, athletics. Uh, you know, I was really good at athletics. Uh, I was fast runner. I could run really quick. Uh, at the age of 16, I ran 10, 6 in the 100, which is the same time that Carl Lewis ran when he was 16. So, look, that doesn't mean I was going to be an amazing athlete. It just meant that I had the raw materials. And up until probably 16, I was, you know, aiming to go to America, try and get a, a scholarship to be an athlete. And then my athletics coach left the school. He got headhunted by another school. Uh, and then and he was my mentor. He was the man I looked up to. He was the man who coached me to, to do all these great things in athletics. And then he he'd left. And so I guess my attention moved um, I still I still ran good times, but I never surpassed anything I'd done up until that point. And then uh, my cricket coach sat me down the one time, and he he basically this is at the age of sort of seventeen eighteen. He basically got me to consider going to professional cricket. But right at the very beginning, it was just one of the sports I played at school. Um, a guy called Bob Blair, a Kiwi ex-Test cricketer, um, had come to my school and he held a coaching session and uh, I guess I was hooked from there but it was just one of the sports I played along with soccer and rugby and tennis and everything else it wasn't a sport that I necessarily thought I would end up pursuing as a career um, except to say that with cricket we played cricket twice a year so in the first term and in the third term we have three terms in Zimbabwe um, at least that was the case when I went to school there um, and so you played in the first term in January February March and then right at the end of the year you know sort of October, November, December. So we had, um, yeah, we had a lot of cricket played. And then, and then I started rubbing shoulders with players who played for the national side. They heard about this kid who was really quick from, from my province and they started picking me in the local leagues. Uh, first of all, in the winter league and then, so you could effectively play cricket all year round. You know, you could play both summers and then in the winter as well. And so, uh, you know, word got around that there's this really quick kid from Matapila land and, and I played for the province at the age of 17 uh, and 18 and then within a few months played for the country when I say in a, within a few months I mean le of leaving school and so that, that that's kind of the concise version uh, there were a lot of people who assisted me helped me along the way the streaks uh, Alistair Campbell Don, Donald Campbell his brother uh, just a long list of people that uh, another guy called Wayne James they used to pick me up to, to play matches on the weekends on Sundays you know there was there was a good support network of people who who believed in me but I guess they even needed a fast bowler you know so they felt if they were if we were going to kind of stand a chance against some of the better teams they needed a bit of pace so everybody needs a fast bowler everybody needs, was it was it always going to be fast bowling there you say you can run 10 six and 100 meters I, I guess that ideally suits you to steam in and bowl it as quick as you can does it yeah that's right James except you know I was all over the place I could bowl really quick but it was I sprayed it a bit. I mean, and that never changed. <laughs> that, that was the case when I was a kid. That was the case when I was an international. So accuracy wasn't my thing, but I, I had a I had genuine raw pace. So if, if I if I got a good direction, and I didn't really swing the ball that much either. You know, it wasn't, maybe I'd seam it a bit. And towards the, the end of an innings, when the ball was a bit older, I could reverse swing it. But it wasn't often I swung the ball, although on occasion I did, you know, but I'm not saying it was impossible. But, but I was just a shock bowler, so I'd, I'd charge in and, and just bowl as quick as I, I could and hit the deck and, and kind of bowl enough balls in good areas and kind of hope that one of them would, would get a result. And so I did that often enough to justify my place in, in most teams. But then, you know, once you step up to test cricket, it's very it's a very different game. The good batsmen just put those bad balls away consistently. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. Their ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. 
He, he made your test debut when you were 18, I think it is, and he played 20, sorry, 30 test matches, 50 ODIs for your country. If I could take you back and give you the chance to live any one of those days in, in a Zimbabwe shirt again, where would you where would you take me? Where would you want to go back to? Well, I'd go to Cape Town, mate. Six for 19 against England. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was that was a very much an anomaly in my life because I bowled straight and the ball swung as well, you know. I think I bowled one bad ball the whole spell. 8.2 overs, I think it was. Something like that. I think I bowled one bad ball. That was to NASA. I bowled a short ball, which he pulled for four. But apart from that, you know, they were just stealing singles and, you know, the odd sort of two here or three there. And, and the rest was just, you know, just really good bowling. I, I just put the ball in good areas and, and it swung a bit. It was it was kind of weird because we were playing at Newlands in Cape Town, of course. And uh, the locals used to say that when the the tide came in, um, it would change the way the balls moved in the air. And, and that was true, actually. We were defending a very modest total. I can't remember what it was, but it, I can't imagine it was more than just over 200. By all intents and purposes, we should have lost We should have lost that match, but I got inspired. I can't remember what exactly. I think it was just an aligning of something, but everything just worked. My technique worked. The ball swung. The England players kept tipping it or hitting in the air or getting bowled. <laughs> Or missing it, you know, it was just, it's one of those matches where everything clicked. And I always required very, you know, a lot of fine tuning. If one thing went a little awry on my action, because because I got called early on in my career for throwing, I was always kind of hypersensitive about my technique. And so if something was a, was a little off, I never felt, I never felt balanced. I never felt at equilibrium or at par. I was always thinking, oh, I've got to tweak this. It doesn't feel right today. I, I, don't, I really don't think you can do that in cricket. You know, sometimes you just got to bowl. Even if it doesn't feel right, you just got to bowl and, and, and hope that the rhythm comes. Just put it in good areas. I'm not saying I never did that, but I really did need a good rhythm. You know, when I had a good rhythm, I bowled well and it was effortless. But oftentimes I was fighting myself, fighting my action or fighting, you know, something, injury, stiffness, whatever. And, and so on a day when everything clicked like it did on that particular occasion oh yeah i'd want to relive that any day mate because that was only that was a that was a one-off it never happened again the months ahead of the 2003 cricket world cup you're named in the zimbabwe squad i I take it you're you're going into that tournament thinking this is a fantastic opportunity zimbabwe kenya south africa hosting it to make a bigger name for yourself try and get zimbabwe winning a few games and see how far you can get in the tournament I wasn't a shoe in initially. I actually wasn't even part of the squad in late December. Um, and in fact, that whole year we we'd had I was in and out the side. We and for a number of reasons. One was somewhat connected to the fact that a guy called Stephen Mangongo was now a selector and he didn't really like me. And I played for his club, funnily enough. But he was really harsh on me. What have you done to upset him? Oh mate, you didn't need to do much to upset Stephen. Um, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen, Stephen was just a hard taskmaster, and he actually coached the national team when you know a couple, a few years ago, maybe three or four or five years ago. Um, and and he was just he's just old school, mate. He was just and and I just never jived with that. When I say old school, he was like he treated the boys like school kids, you know, in the team, Takashinga. He just treated them like, and I, I of course was now a seasoned international by this stage. I was, I was coming to the end of my career and I was with Takashinga for a season and a bit and he was like, he was our coach and Takashinga was based in the high density suburbs and it was a bit of a trick for me to get there to make practices and he always wanted me there at practices and oh gosh, I couldn't always make practices and sometimes I'd be away on national duties. So he was just a guy, I'll just, I'll just call it a personality clash. I think that's the simplest way of putting it. And of course, because I'd performed as well in the past and I'd taken, you know, or at least I'd performed and, and had some match-winning performances, they kind of expected that every day. Every time I played, they expected me to go out and take five wickets or, or win matches for the team. And I wasn't that kind of bowler. I, wasn't, I didn't have that consistency. So for the last year and a bit, I was in and out the side. I was also struggling with injury. Uh, there was just some personal stuff going on in my life. So come December or, or November, I can't remember, I played in a match against Kenya I wasn't even in the squad for the World Cup. Played in a test match against Pakistan, primarily because Pakistan came to play a couple of tests. We got hammered in the first test, or hammered in the warm-up match, I can't remember. And they didn't even look at me. They thought, oh, you know, Henry's got pace, he brings something different. So they picked me for the test in Harare, I believe. I took five wickets in the one innings. We lost the test match, but I took five wickets. So they looked at me and thought, oh, maybe we need to look at him again. He's bowling well now. And then Kenya were on tour, so they picked me for that 
I, I think it was either a one of one day match or a couple or something like that. And I took six for, so I took six for 28. So those are my second best figures in one day cricket, albeit against Kenya. But they, you know, they still had some good players. They had Thomas Adoyo, they had Kennedy Otieno, they had Steve Tocolo and Morris Adumbe. So, you know, they weren't a rubbish team. And bear in mind, in that same World Cup a few months later, they got through to the semis. So, you know, they weren't a walkover. That six wickets then got me into the squad. And then, of course, yes, the excitement of playing comes into play. But brewing under the surface as well was the idea of doing this protest. So it had already kind of, by the time I was announced and in the squad, maybe a month before the World Cup, I was already in talks by that stage with, with Andy about doing the protest. I'd always assumed, Henry, you know, that it, it may be obviously me being a bit a bit thick, but whenever I've read anything about your protest, it always reads that Andy Flower came up to you almost the night before the protest and said, do you fancy doing this with me, Henry? But this was something I planned much before that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I don't know where you, I don't know. I don't know who's been informing the other people about the timeline, but there was a lot of forethought that went into it. Maybe a month's planning, I reckon. If not a month, certainly three weeks. I've read some quotes from Andy Flower who said that he he had this idea to do this and he was thinking about who, who he could do it with. And he thought of you. T- take me back to that conversation when he first raised that with you and what, what he said. It wasn't even Andy's idea to start with. Um, There's another man called Nigel Huff. Okay. And Nigel, Nigel was a friend of Andy's. I believe if it wasn't Nigel himself, it was another friend of Andy's. We took him to his farm, not Andy's farm, this other gentleman's farm, and showed him. And he said, look, look, look what they're doing, mate. And, and of course, I believe there may well have been some kind of um, distress there, maybe some war veterans invading or something. I can't remember. Uh, in any case, he said Nigel Huff then challenged Andy that really it, it wouldn't be right for the team to play in the midst of all the turmoil going on with the farm invasions in Zimbabwe. He felt that it needed to be to be challenged, on, on you know, and, and the best platform for that was the World Cup. He suggested to Andy that the whole team get to boycott the World Cup. Andrew, of course, needed to approach me to see if I could get the confidence of, of the players of color in the team. He felt he could confidently go and get the white players, but he didn't think he could get the black players. So... Of course, myself being the, the senior black player, he came to me to try and see if it was something that I, I might sort of consider. And if, if, I, if I did, would I recruit the other players? But the problem was we had a few young players. So there was Douglas Hondo, um, Tatenda Taibu, and Dion Ibrahim. And I just felt it wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't get them on side. And I said, good luck to Andy trying to get the rest of them, you know, the other guys on side, because some of them were playing their last World Cup, etc. So, you know, a boycott would have been... And look, I, I don't want to take credit for what was said in the meetings. I have no idea who said what, but ultimately we came to the conclusion that that probably wouldn't work to get everyone on board. So we met a couple of times. He came up to me initially at, at a net session in Harare. So by this stage, we were in Harare. And, you know, I think the World Cup sort of began in, um, in earnest in February if I'm not mistaken. And so we were having a net session maybe sometime in January. Forgive me for the timelines. I can't remember. That's all right. He said, there's something I want to talk to you about. I said, sure. So we went to, I think it was the Newland Shops, which is a sort of fancy shopping center in Harare. And we, and we he then introduced me to the idea. Now, bear in mind that uh, Andy and I had had some, some history. We, we weren't getting along for a wee while. And when I say a wee while, I mean maybe a few years. Um, just, just, just a personality clash. And so... Anyway, I, I, I was still willing to listen to the guy. I took it away. I thought about it for a while. And then, like I said, I, I just wasn't sure we'd get everyone on board from my side. Uh, we, we then decided to keep it just the two of us. And then I suggested we speak to David Coltart, who's a good friend of mine who was involved in politics. He was also involved as a human rights lawyer. And he introduced me to the idea that Mugabe was a dictator, etc. So once he came on board, then it started to take shape as a protest. And you two are indelibly linked, aren't you now, Andy Flower and yourself, in terms of that day at the World Cup when you both wore black armbands for the death of democracy in your country. I've seen it described as being brave. I've seen it been described as all kinds of different things. Did you have any idea about the scale of what you were undertaking when you put those black armbands on and what the potential repercussions for you might be? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we, We knew it was a world stage. If you're going to do something like that at a World Cup, you know, you know that it's going to have some kind of impact to the billions of eyeballs watching. And, and we, you know, we knew that 
it, it would get external media attention above all else, you know. We weren't too sure about local media coverage, but um, we wanted to say to the world that we disagreed with what was going on and we're trying to draw attention to the human rights abuses, the excesses, you know, all that stuff. And the repercussions we weighed up. We even met, you know, various people who were involved in um, security, people who'd worked at the highest levels of government, in that they'd worked with the secret police or something, you know. So, so we were meeting people at, you know, at night in dodgy places like golf clubs, <laughs> you know, jumping from one car to another to, to kind of communicate and, and people telling us this is what might happen, this is how Mugabe might react, this is how the ministers might react, etc. So we were fully briefed. But so strong was our conviction that we, you know, we, we felt it was the right thing to do to carry on, you know. Let, let me skip you on until so, to the aftermath of that, because yep. obviously well chronicled the actual event itself and, and the protest. But I, I read a piece of, that you'd done, I don't know when you did it actually, but about how you were perceived. You, you were quite upset or, or angered or, or whatever the phrase might be about how the black people in Zimbabwe responded more than anything because you'd effectively protested on their behalf but they they didn't take it how you thought they might did they no it's quite a weird thing you know and of course they've done a you know a lot of people have done a 360 now uh, obviously when robert mugabe showed his true colors in later years and the economy was decimated and people were still disappearing and people still getting tortured etc then people started to go oh okay the penny dropped for them you know um, ultimately, I was I was kind of, if, if anything, disappointed that the very people that I was trying to protest on behalf of, you know, didn't get it. They they just didn't. A lot of people didn't get it. They didn't understand what it was all about. They called us sellouts. They called us, you know, traitors and all sorts of weird names that just don't make any sense. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like you know, um, who's the bad guy here? You know, how many people have I killed? Zero. You know, how many people have I destroyed their livelihoods? None. Uh, um, what am I actually doing here? Well, I'm actually asking the powers that be to sort of stop bullying people and killing people and doing all sorts of terrible things. So how am I the bad guy? But, you know, in, in, in many Zimbabweans' eyes, that was that was fair game. It was a fair call. They, they thought that we, myself and Andy, had um, obviously crossed a line. And instead of looking at the actual facts and the evidence of what we were trying to bring to the fore, they just thought, you know, you can't be critical of your president. I mean, it's quite, a, it's kind of a weird situation because Zimbabwe actually has laws that prevent you from slandering the president. It's kind of weird. You know, you can't even be critical of him. If you denigrate the office of the president, um, and of course, uh, any tyrant would love a law like that because um, it, they've just got to prove in, in the law that you've denigrated the, the office of president and, and they, can, they can make anything stick if they want to. So there, there was really a culture of fear in Zimbabwe at the time in which people didn't want to be seen to be critical of the government. So they couldn't really side with us. Uh, there were some people who wore black armbands at the match itself. Some people got arrested for showing solidarity with us. So, you know, there was a price to pay if, if people supported us. But, of course, you know, 16 years on now, Olonga, oh, he's, you know, Olonga was, he was a trailblazer. He stood up, he was ahead of his time, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's a bit late now, guys. I've, I've gone, man. I'm living in a different country now. I got the message loud and clear back in the day. Thank you very much. You know, I was getting booed by people on the side. I was, you know, there were horrible articles written about us. So that was hard to stomach. But I can understand why they had more anger towards me than Andy. I mean, I, I can kind of get it. I was one of them. But of course, the accusation they always throw my way is I was never Zimbabwean because uh, I'm half Zimbabwean, so I'm half Kenyan. Mom's Zimbabwean, dad's Kenyan. So they always say, oh, he wasn't Zimbabwean anyway. You know? So, yeah, it, it was it was a very weird time. And, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm as patriotic as they come. I still kind of even see myself as Zimbabwean, even though I'm a British citizen now and, and you know, maybe soon to be an Australian citizen. But I guess at my core, I still see myself as Zimbabwean and still still barrack for Zimbabwe whenever they they do anything. But you know, ultimately, yeah, it was just really sad. And the one way the one way I explained it was, the, the, there's here's the the all powerful leader of the country, a, a dictator, a vicious tyrant, who the estimates say at the end of his life he was worth a few billion, certainly a billion, maybe more. So he's raped, plundered, and pillaged the country, and is very wealthy. I left with nothing. I I started a new life in England as a nobody. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I'm a squeaky clean angel. I'm just saying the reason that that guy who was yelling at me had no shoes on or had torn shoes or had torn trousers is because of the very leader he eulogized and whom he loved and bowed down to. Now, as someone who went through a good education system, 
I was saying, no, I, I'm going to call the BS here. You know, I'm going, no, 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 you know. Robert Mugabe is not all he's cut out to be. He's actually a vicious tyrant who slaughtered 30,000 of his own people. Like, who does that? And then claims that he's, a, you know, he's, he's a man of the people. Who does that? You don't, you can't do that. You, you know, I mean, killing two people is bad enough. You can't kill 30,000 people, just get away with it, and people still eulogize you as a hero. You, you know, it's just weird that the, the real reason for them living lives under duress was because of this leader that they still put on a pedestal. And then the guy who's coming to say, hey, I want to re- represent you guys and say to this guy, please stop doing that. They go, no, 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 you shut up. You know, who are you? You're a seller. We, we don't like you. You're not one of us. You don't represent us. And then, of course, I got death threats, so I, I left. And I was like, okay. Fine. I, if you don't want me to speak on your behalf, I'll I'll go sing, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go start a new life and then and, and do my own thing. And, you know. Are you looking to get your business in front of the cricket world? Join forces with the fastest growing cricket podcast on the web, the Cricket Budget Podcast, brought to you in association with your business. Take an advert on the pod or become the headline sponsor. Contact us, cricketbudget at hotmail.com for some very reasonable prices and joining the fun as the Cricket Budget Podcast continues to go from strength to strength. You obviously took those death threats seriously. I mean, you've described him Mugabe there. He's obviously not averse to taking it out on people who he thinks are against him. You presumably felt for your safety and, and had to get out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the death threats were credible. They came from two sources. One was someone who worked in the CIO, which is the Central Intelligence Organization, which is the, the sort of secret police in Zimbabwe. The other was uh, a minister overheard in his office saying that a longer guy thinks he's so clever, just... Wait until the World Cup's over, we'll sort them out, you know. And that in Zimbabwe normally means you disappear. I mean, they still have abductions happening even to this day. People just disappear, never seen, never seen again. You would have thought, though, wouldn't you, that you being high profile as a cricketer and obviously the, the protest being worldwide, you would almost be the safest people in Zimbabwe because if they touched you, it would be so obvious why they were doing it and what, what had happened. But it didn't seem to work like that, did it? Oh, no, mate. Um, Morgan Sangurai, very high profile, member of the opposition party, leader of the opposition party, imprisoned so many times, tried on, tried for treason, beaten up, fractured skull, you know, called a Western puppet, all sorts of things. They crucified his, his character, you know, they, they just, they had ways, mate. And I wasn't as high profile as him, you know, so yes, the spotlight would have been on for a while. Um, but if, you know, if we didn't get that draw in our final game, against Pakistan when it rained. Who knows whether I'd still be here, mate. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that rain allowed us to progress in place of England or Pakistan, and that effectively saved my life. So, you know, ultimately, I have no idea what future I would have had in Zimbabwe. It may well have been the case that, yes, they might have left me alone, but I doubt it, mate. I know them too well. Their track record is, is absolutely rock solid, that if you get on the wrong side of them, um, they they respond normally with violence. I, I sent you a piece I wrote a couple of months ago where I, I had about two or three weeks in Zimbabwe and I, I found it a, a fascinating experience. And this was only 2012, so it wasn't that long ago. I found it a fascinating right. country to go to because I, I'm quite a political person. I'm obviously aware of what you've done in cricket and, and various other things. And so I and I, I was spending my time predominantly with the, the black community in, in Zimbabwe. So went to the few of the, the rural villages and, and things like that and we're talking to people and even, mm. even then um, Mugabe was obviously still looming large at the time as the, as the mm. leader of the country and you, you said to people um, I, I, I went to a hospital actually and I was quite surprised about how bad the hospital was and I was surprised right. that there were so many people in abject poverty really poor people very nice mm. people I, I thought the Zimbabwean people were one of the nicest people I'd, I'd ever, ever ever come across but they were living in some horrible mm. situations but as soon as you ever Agreed. as soon as you mentioned it might be actually the fault of the government, mm. they did exactly what you just said. They, they defended Mugabe. Mm. He, he was um, voiced to me by the majority of people there as their saviour almost, their hero, the person that kind of made it possible for them to live. Mm, I know. Very weird. I've, you know, I've said on Twitter that it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a very bad analogy, but it's kind of analogous of Stockholm Syndrome when, yes. um, when, when you know, when an abuser or, or an, someone who's been abused by someone fall, kind of falls in love with them and feels they have to protect them. It's kind of weird. And I know it, it's, it's a weird kind of comparison, but, but I think there's an element of Zimbabweans being 
kind of invested in the past. So, so we, we obviously came from, uh, we're a former colony of the British Empire. So there's that history that speaks very powerfully to a lot of black people who many would have been old enough to understand segregation and, you know, the unfair voting system that was in place. You know, you had to either own lots of land or you had to have a minimum of qualifications to vote in elections. You know, if you spoke out against the government, you could be imprisoned like Mugabe was. He was initially put in prison for making um, subversive speech, for example. You know, so that could happen back in the day when Ian Smith was in charge and it was still Rhodesia. But you know, fast forward a number of years, and all of a sudden, they've got this cognitive dissonance. Because on the one hand, Mugabe's their hero, he's their liberator, and and on the and and by the same at the same time, the white man has to remain the enemy because of the past. And so they they get caught in this weird sort of sitting on the fence position where they they can't call their leader to account because well, he's the man who's behind the fact that we're free today. And of course, to credit Mugabe for the liberation war is is just is a bit hyperbolic you know i mean he he was very much a part of many forces that were trying to dismantle the old system but if we were to give credit where it's due sure he played an important part in the liberation war effort um but a lot of people just couldn't bring themselves to be critical of the man and i think the other thing as well james is and you may you may have understood this when you went to zimbabwe but the chiefs if, if you know, if you if you watch, I know it's a, it's a really crass um, comparison, but but if you watch movies about you know the Wild West and and Indians, Red Indians versus you know the Americans, you always get the impression that the chief is is kind of the leader of the pack and leader of the clan, etc. And that's the case in Africa too. So so any any chief, anyone who's been bestowed the position of chief, whether he's a literal chief or uh, Mugabe wasn't literally a chief he was kind of an absent chief if you will but you know he was like a chief in the sense that you know he ran the country but chiefs can get away with anything mate. they 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 run they rule the roost and and it's kind of almost um their right to own everything and make all the decisions and people will still you know be very respectful to a leader uh, pander to him or her because by virtue of their office rather than by virtue of the way they conduct themselves and whether they um, are good at what they do. So the chief can destroy the country. You know, he can come up with disastrous agricultural policies that literally destroy the agrarian-based industry. You know, the chief can steal people's land without paying them for it. The chief can throw people in prison without trial or without charge. You know, the chief can do all that because he's the chief. Yeah, it's just the way it is. He's worked his way up to the top, and he's the chief. If you want to, you want to do what he does. You've got to become the chief. And so Robert Mugabe, along with a lot of other African leaders, have been able to abuse the people that are placed under them, the people that have entrusted them with the role of governing. And irrespective of how they've governed, people still, you know, sing songs about him. And, and I mean, the same thing happened in South Africa, mate. Jacob Zuma had something like 600 corruption cases against him when he was a sitting president. I mean, like, where else in the world can you get that happening? Where else can you get people like Mobuto, whose people are starving and he's got gold taps in his mansion? You know, it's like Africans, um, this structure where the chief is respected, come what may, no matter what they do, and it's to the detriment of a lot of people. So that's what we were up against. That's what I was up against. And I didn't, I underestimated that. I thought, you know, we, we, Zimbabwe is one of these countries that you always hear of spoken in glowing terms about how literate our people are. There's a high literacy rate, very well educated. And so I just assumed most people would get it. But, mate, I was in for a rude awakening. I found it a very interesting trip to Zimbabwe. I, we, we came out of the airport and we drove into Harare. And the person I was traveling with said, this is, this is the only good road in Zimbabwe because this is the road that Mugabe uses. He, he, he leaves his palace and he goes to the airport. He comes back into yep. the airport and he goes back to his palace. So this, this road is beautiful. And as soon as we turned off that road, it's potholes galore. And it's, it's, it's kind of you're into uh, a totally different world. And I, I found the race side of it quite interesting as well because I'm used to being in England when you're walking through cities and you see black people white people Asian people and you walk past them and everybody's kind of doing the same thing, going about their daily business. But I, I went into, as I say, into some of the re- remoter parts of Zimbabwe, and as a white guy, I had little kids coming up to me and touching me on the arm. Your skin feels yep. the same as mine. They'd never, they'd never really, they'd never touched a white person before. And <laughs> it, was, 
It was fascinating. It really was. I, I, I walked yep. through one of the um, back parts of Zimbabwe on my uh, Harare on my own one day, and I, I, was, I walked through this street where it was all black kids there, and I, I felt yeah. for the only time in my life what it would be like to be a black guy walking into a white pub or something in England where, you know, because they were, they were all looking yeah. at me and they were all inquisitive and they were all curious. It wasn't nastiness at all. It wasn't racism or anything. They were just, there's a white yeah. guy. What's he doing here? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was fascinating country. Be- beautiful country as well. I, I, I mm-hmm. love Zimbabwe. How, how do you feel now Mugabe's died? I mean, obviously nobody's dancing on anybody's graves because anybody dying is a sad thing, but it's an end mm. of an era, but it doesn't necessarily end, end Zimbabwe being the way it's been, does it? I mean, after the coup, Mugabe just lost all vigour. You can almost just see him melt away when you see the photos, you know, when the coup happened. It's only a couple of years, mate. And you look at the photos of how he withered away after he lost power. Do you know, something that doesn't get spoken of much that I find quite intriguing is how shallow Robert Mugabe revealed himself to be in those last moments of, of holding on to power and going into obscurity. And I think it's all revealed ultimately by the things he said after he was ousted in whatever that was, a coup or not a coup, whatever it was. He spoke very strongly about how he was betrayed. Mm. Now, he was betrayed, not the nation, not the party, but how he was betrayed. And he wanted, he actually was already putting a launch pad in place for Grace, his wife, to take over. And, of course, that's ultimately what was his undoing is, you know, Mnangagwa was getting ousted and set aside. And um, I think one of the, the army officials was overseas. And, and, and anyway, I don't need to regurgitate the, the, coup, the coup or whatever it was again. But it was just interesting how he, he it's almost like he thought Zimbabwe was his personal, you know, fiefdom. That, that it was, this was his kingdom. He was the leader. He was the chief. How dare um, I have people who would betray me. And then at the next election, he said he wasn't going to vote for ZANU-PF. He was going to vote for the opposition. Now, I'm pretty sure it was a secret vote. I wasn't there to make sure that he didn't vote for ZANU-PF, but he made his feelings very well known. Can you believe, and I said this on Twitter, it's like, this is crazy. Mugabe voted against ZANU-PF, or voted for the MDC. Um, white farmers voted for ZANU-PF. And it was just bizarre. It's like a flipping of everything we had in Zimbabwean politics in the space of a few weeks. Mugabe almost turned his back on everything he did. You know, it's almost like he said, party that I support, I can't support them because... But it wasn't an ideological disagreement. It was because they booted him out of power. That's how selfish he was. It wasn't because uh, I disagree with them on this, you know, their, their policies have changed all of a sudden. It was just because he wasn't top dog anymore. So he ran off to the opposition that he's been plundering, pillaging, beating up, imprisoning... On a whim, just like that. You know, like everything he'd done for like, uh, the, the opposition party came to power around about, when I say came to power, well, sorry, came to existence, around about 97, 98. So for 20 years, 20 years, right, he was imprisoning, resisting Morgan Sangurai. He was stealing elections. He was doing all this weird stuff that just never gave the opposition a sniff. And then he gets ousted from power and all of a sudden, he, he's like a little kid who's like, you know, he's lost the football match. He's losing the football match. He says, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. It, it was just bizarre. It was it was like, no one wants to talk about that, that he just flipped. I say no one, I don't mean literally. But, but why are we making a big deal about the fact that his legacy was one of him just completely disowning everything he'd built in ZANU-PF, turning his back on them because of his personal spat with Mnangagwa, the man who betrayed him. You know, that was just weird. I mean, if I am aligned to a political party, I don't know. Imagine I was a, I was a labor right in the UK. Imagine I, I loved labor all my career. And at the end, like, and I got stabbed in the back by someone. I don't know. Imagine you're Gordon Brown. <laughs> you lost a few months and then the election comes out and you kick it. You don't just all of a sudden go to the conservatives. You know, it's like, are you serious? Are you that fickle? That's, that's, a, that's a bad example in this country at the moment with Brexit because they're, they're, they're swapping every, every, every left, left, right and centre. People are walking across the House of Commons to a different seat. But I, I know, know exactly where you're coming from, Henry. You're probably right. You're probably right. But, <laughs> but you, you get my point, though. It's like, it's like Mugabe was just – and that, to me, really summed up the character of the man. He was a very selfish man, yeah. extremely selfish. It was always about him. And, you know, so you talk about the roads, you know, the beautiful road to his mansion. He would sometimes just come and commandeer a 
the passenger planes because we didn't have like a presidential plane. So Air Zimbabwe had, you know, like a couple of planes. And once in a while, if he wanted to use the plane, he'd just come and all passengers get kicked off, you know, and, and he just takes the plane. Um, and there's no scandal. You know, there's no, if this happened in England, I mean, for crying out loud, Harry and Megan or Megan fly private jet to Elton John's villa. And there's an outcry in the UK. Yeah. This, and that's like a, a favor. In Zimbabwe, Mugabe would just take the plane and you can't say anything. You know, and then, then they, were, they were gifted all sorts of things to build his mansion in Harare. The government forked out millions of dollars. I mean, here's a guy who was surrounded by yes men and women, filled with ideas of megalomania. I don't know. He just thought he was bigger than... I mean, he came up with bizarre sayings like, he's, he's worse than Hitler. You know, I'll be 10 times worse than Hitler. He says, oh, I'm greater than Jesus Christ because... I'm supposed to have died so many times, and look, I've come back every time. This is weird how he just, he was an egomaniac. By the way, I've, I haven't given too many interviews since he died, and, and people say things like, don't speak ill of the dead, but I just find it weird, you know, even now, a lot of people, maybe 20 years' time, this will be written about him, but for now, people are just letting the dust settle, but truth be told, Mugabe was all about himself. He really was. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. If I could take you back to 2003, Henry, knowing knowing what's happened since and knowing death threats and knowing how it was received and knowing the fact that you've had to go to Britain and then to Australia since, would you do the same again? Would you, would you wear that black armband and, and do that same protest knowing what was going to come? Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, that's just it's hardwired to my character, I think. It's just the kind of thing I would do. I, uh, and to not do it would be to disown myself. You know, it's just you, you just you get raised a certain way. I went to schools that taught me about fairness and taught me about justice and taught me about standing up to bullies. And, you know, it's just just the way I got raised, mate. I, and like, look, I'm, I'm older now. I've got kids. Would I do it now? Probably not. You know, different station in life. To be fair, I'm living in a good country where that's not necessary. You don't have to do this sort of thing or do that sort of thing here. It was a very unique time, and it was a crazy time. I mean, England, remember, don't forget, England wanted to boycott Zimbabwe. Uh, they didn't come to Zimbabwe during that World Cup. There were very strong political voices, you know, condemning the state. England, the England team got hung out to dry. It was like, you know, Tony Blair saying, oh, we advise the players not to go, but we can't tell them not to go. <laughs> it was weird. But yeah, it, it, it was a weird time where the voices of condemnation were so strong. That doesn't happen nowadays. I don't know what's happened in the world, but that kind of common condemnation of over Zimbabwe, that, that time is coming on because the anger and um, I, I guess you know the um, polarizing of people over the race issue, white farmers, etc. All of that's happened now. So we probably won't get that type of emotion again, but. You know, Leopard can change its spots, and my spots are that I feel really strongly about certain issues, and I, it always moves me to action. You know, like like I feel strongly about charity work, so I'm just, you know I'm still doing charity work here. I started in Zimbabwe, and I you know I'll do it till the day I die, trying to you know help people, and, and that's just hardwired into me. I'm not saying that as if I've got a big head or anything. I'm just saying it's it's just that side of me has always been important in my life, and so when I see people in distress, I try to help. As a proud Zimbabwean, you, you grew up there, you've got family there, 30 test matches, 50 ODIs, as I said. You, you have never been back since, have you? Is, there must be quite a, a bit of a sadness there that, you know, that's been taken away from you. You can't go back to your country, effectively. W would you like to go back? Oh, I certainly wouldn't go back to live there. But, mate, listen, James, I'm absolutely, I'm a grown man. I'm 43 now. I absolutely own everything about the protest. I, you know, a lot of people still have the, still under the impression that, and you hear this all the time, a lot of people coming up and say, oh, you know, you were used, you know, Andy Flower just used you, and, and, and that accusation keeps coming back. And it's normally from black people who love Mugabe. 
ultimately, my, my passion for the country is unwavering, but I've kind of moved on. You know, I, I, I going back is is something that I might entertain if I'm invited back there. But I, I but I own the fact that I'm an exile. I, I don't blame. It's not something that was taken from me. I, I could have decided not to protest. Yeah. And I probably would still be living in Zimbabwe right now, towing the party line and just getting on with life and being being who I am. I don't know where life would have led me, but so I, you know, I, I try to I try to explain to people that you know I wasn't bullied into it, I wasn't cajoled into it. I was old enough. I was 26. You know, I I knew what the issues were. I knew what Mugabe was like. I knew he was a tyrant. I knew he was a dictator. I knew he was abusing his power. I, I and I knew that that was the case for a lot of people in the regime in Zanu PF and. And, and I had a very, I had a cogent picture of what I was up against. All that to say, I own every part of my circumstances now. Don't look back on myself and think, oh gosh, you were a naive 26-year-old. No, 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 I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. But sadly, James, I've been burned so many times. And I mean, maybe, maybe Twitter's the wrong place to live if, <laughs> if, if, if it's someone like me, you know. But I just get the distinct impression that there are more haters out there than people who like what I did or like me. You know what, mate? I'm just going to live my life where I'm at. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to keep singing. Um, I'm going to keep furthering my my support for causes I believe in. And if Zimbabweans don't get me, that's okay. You know, the, the, the rest of the world sort of seems to appreciate some of the things I've done. And that's enough for me. If Zimbabweans eventually, after two decades, realize that, you know, here was a guy who took a conscientious stance against a vicious tyrant, then so be it, you know. There's some people who recognize that now, though. I must be fair to them. It's not so one-sided that no, you know, that everyone's a hater. Oh, there's some nice people out there, and it's a real joy to sort of communicate with them when they when they 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 view Mugabe and Zimbabwe in the last 40 years with a with a balanced perspective and then you know no bias. So as long as I speak to the biased people, I know what I'm going to get. You know, I know what I'm going to be called. It's happened so many times. I'm going to be called a sellout. I'm going to be called an Uncle Tom. I'm going to be called this, that. And, you know, just just the usual stuff. It's so tired now. But I guess, honestly speaking, though, if 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 Zimbabwe decided that I have some something to offer them, then you never know. But I'm not going to go and live there. I think you can be very proud of what you did. I think it was a, a, an incredible thing to do. And I, I wish you all the best for the future. I'm very conscious that it's getting late in Adelaide and I'm sat here in the daylight and st- starting to tick by where you are, Henry. I really appreciate you coming on the Cricket Badger podcast this week and wish you all the best for your singing and wish you all the best for the future. Thank you for being on the show this week. James, it's my pleasure. Um, let me know when it's out um, and see you on Twitter. It's that Badger style. Thanks very much to Henry Alonga for joining me this week. I think you'll agree, obviously we got off topic, massively off the off the topic of cricket, but I think when you talk to somebody like Henry Alonga, it goes with the territory. Massive respect to Henry, massive thanks to him for joining me on this week's show. Thank you for his time and good luck to him in the future for all of his singing and I'm sure his life will bring him many different opportunities because he's that sort of guy. Thank you very much to Henry for joining me. I'll be back again. Same time next week. I always say that. I always say the same time next week, and it very rarely is the same time next week. But if you subscribe to the podcast, you'll find out when it's out, when next week's edition is out, because it will drop into your inbox and you'll see it coming in. And please, while you're there, stick us five stars, stick a comment, stick something nice on there to encourage other people to listen to the Cricket Badger podcast. But whenever the next one is out, you'll find out soon. Follow it on Twitter as well, at Cricket underscore Badger. I always tweet them on there as well. Until then, Badgers, enjoy your cricket. Sports Social Podcast Network.